What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. My guest today is Joan Radner from Lovell, Maine, Professor Emerita of Literature at American University, oral historian, writer, and professional storyteller. Joe has been studying, teaching, telling, and collecting stories most of her life, and has performed from Maine to Hawaii to Finland, past president of the American Folklore Society and the National Storytelling Network. She has published books and articles on subjects ranging from early Irish historiography and Anglo-Irish drama to women's folklore, deaf culture, and New England social history. Her new book, published this year by University of Massachusetts Press, is Wit and Wisdom, The Forgotten Literary Life of New England Villages. So, Joe, welcome to The Pointed Furs. I usually start with a, a kind of biographical question, who you are, where you came from, how you found your way to the, the conversation. Can you give us a little bit of um, history and tell it as a, as a yarn? Well, I come from a long main lineage of um, settlers who made their way to found Freiburg, Maine in the 1760s on my mother's side. On my father's side, Quakers who wound up in West Virginia. Part of the yarn is that my mother's family from Maine did not trust a Southerner when my mother chose to marry someone from West Virginia. And he played up to it, and he referred to his father-in-law as Colonel all his life. He spelled it K-E-R-N-E-L, and he wrote him, he wrote him letters with that address. Anyway, I um, I was actually born in Manhattan because both of my parents were working there. But at the age of two months, I went to join my grandparents in Maine and lived with them. So I was imprinted early enough with Maine. And I have been in Lovell, Maine and Freiburg, Maine every year of my life when I wasn't in school or teaching as I taught at American University. And I very much connect with Maine and Western Maine. It feels like home to me. And I've been a resident of Lovell ever since I took early retirement from American University in 2000 to go freelance as a storyteller and oral historian and writer. My life has been a life of fascination with stories. And Oddly enough, my PhD is in early Celtic languages and literatures because I learned that there was so much story material, so much literature in Old Irish that had never been examined because the language, as my former professor John Kelleher used to say, is actually an invention collaborating uh, between German philologists and the devil. It's a very difficult language. and people hadn't studied the literature. So I went into Celtic languages and literatures as a graduate student at Harvard and got my PhD in that. And then we got a job at American University. And the second year I was there, the folklorist passed away two weeks before classes started. 
So I became a folklorist <laughs> and um, found a lot more stories that way. <laughs> became fascinated with storytelling itself, worked with and was president of the Washington Storytellers Theater, which was a theater for adults. Uh, where we brought in world-famous storytellers in the 80s, and I learned the profession from them. I've been chasing stories all over the world and, and in my fascinations ever since. And that certainly applies to Maine and what I heard from my family. And I didn't think I came from a storytelling family. I felt a little bit unqualified as a storyteller, Finally, I realized that my family told stories. They were just so short. You know, Mainers are, are economical with words. And uh, I hadn't noticed it, but some of them have haunted me. Mm -hmm. The story that's haunted me the most is just one sentence long. Your Uncle Bob, at midnight, in his red nightshirt, rode his largest pig backwards down Main Street. You know. I mean, it's it's an unforgettable image and, and a clear beginning, middle, and end. It is. It is. There there are details that one would, would wish for, and I searched for them for many years. My father said that, that it was in all the regional papers, and it was, the headline was, Sanburn Rides Again. And I always wondered about that again. <laughs> it was pure fiction, though. I can't claim it as a family story. There, the connection that we're about to discuss that's in your book and the, and your and your background is that you are a sort of an exemplar student and practitioner of the oral tradition and performer. And uh, that's a really interesting avocational um, vocational combination, which is unusual, I think. If you are not a storyteller, the first thing that people think is, how do you remember all that stuff? And a lot of the interpretation of folk tales had to do with how the storyteller remembered it. It's not about that at all. It's about seeing the images in your mind and telling the story. So uh, it helped me a lot and helped my students a lot to hear me tell stories and then to realize what it was like actually in, an, in a preliterate culture like early Ireland. Mm -hmm. So let's move to the book. I read it with great interest. Um, it's a phenomenon about which I knew absolutely nothing. Uh, one of the great joys of doing these this interview program is that I learned so much that I didn't know. So it's Wit and Wisdom, the Forgotten Literary Life of New England Villages. Let's focus on Maine, but let's start at the beginning in how you found the seed for this particular effort. <laughs> it was a nasty summer in the mid-1980s, and it fell to me to empty the house in Freiburg where my grandmother and before her my great-grandmother had lived. And that's how it started. I was in the attic and it was full of paper. My family is terminally literate. Uh, there were letters and documents of all kinds, ledgers, commonplace books, old school books, this and that. And I just, because I come from a long line of pack rats, did the right thing and piled it into boxes and carried it downstairs and loaded it someplace else. But in the mid-90s, I opened one of those boxes and it had the strangest stuff in it. You know, in various handwritings, pieces of 
literary compositions that were clearly not by the major poets of the century. And I began to read bits of things that were quite diverse. Let's see if I can find you one. Um, things that were a little inscrutable and surprisingly modern. Local brevities. Mr. Fred Farrington, while in Saco recently, was mistaken for a member of the last legislature and arrested. He was charged with burglary, arson, conspiracy, embezzlement, sedition, and false pretenses. Now, life doesn't change much, does it? I mean, that was that was around 1870, and <laughs> we still are doing these things to members of the legislature with any luck at all. And then I found a, a very unprepossessing piece of yellowed paper that had a kind of faint pencil mark on the middle of it saying, Tollbridge Journal, volume six, number three, March 12th, 1870. And it did not look like a journal. And it was just yellowed paper. And Tollbridge, I knew, Tollbridge is the neighborhood in Freiburg where my family settled. It's around the, the old course of the Saco River and the Tollbridge was the bridge that went over that part. But it was a neighborhood of just scattered farmsteads, nothing commercial, certainly no newspaper, and nothing that looked like a newspaper was there anyway. And then as I lifted that page, I realized it was sewn to a bunch of other little pieces of paper. And underneath it, there was a big essay headed Report of Last Lyceum. And that was puzzling too, because I had heard of the Lyceum movement you know, mainly antebellum subscription lecture series in American cities and towns. You bought a se the series and you went and you sat and you listened to visiting dignitaries like Emerson give a lecture, that sort of thing. And this was clearly not that. I didn't know at the time, but Lyceum in the 19th century just meant any kind of literary event, not necessarily a movement or something. And the, the description went on to describe a debate with a number of local Freiburg men, um, and it made fun of them. It didn't talk about what they said. They were debating about something about the common schools, but there was no information about what they said. Instead, it was making fun of their debating skills and their different styles. It was a kind of local roast. And then it ended our journal was omitted for lack of contributors. And, but here it was, the journal, writing about the past, I guess, the past week. I don't know. That was the beginning. And I thought, you know, there were, underneath it, there was all kinds of poetry. There was a, an essay on virtue. There was an essay on men's vanity that said that men are more vain than women with less justification. There was... <laughs> There were there were all kinds of jokes about some local farmers who had evidently purchased some hogs that died. And I thought my great-grandmother had a very quirky hobby. And then I was chatting with Stan Howe, who was the director of the Bethel Historical Society at the time, and he said, oh, yeah, yeah. my family's got some of that stuff in, in their attic in East Bethel. I'll go check it out. And he sent me some photocopies from East Bethel that were the same kind of stuff, you know, a mixture of humor and seriousness and poetry and jokes. And 
And so I thought, well, maybe the whole region had a quirky hobby. For a while, I thought it was only Maine. But then I sent queries out to historical societies in Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont. And mostly the answers I got were, huh? Huh? What's that? We don't have anything like that. And then a few people said, yes, we do. And here, we didn't know what this was, but here's what we've got. And I got things from all over northern New England. So I was off and running, and I realized that I had, instead of just finding something peculiar in my own family background, I had tapped into a phenomenon that nobody knew about that was all over the region. And it actually lasted from about 1830 to about 1890 in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and rural Massachusetts. And it happened in tiny places, so tiny, little neighborhoods that were around a one-room schoolhouse, mostly. And they tended to call these gatherings lyceums, although sometimes they called them debating societies or clubs or um, associations for mental improvement. They had all kinds of names for what they did. But basically, in the wintertime, I reconstructed it. It took me 20 years. Uh, in the wintertime, people in these little farming communities, these little backwaters, not the middle of town, but a little neighborhood way on the edge, would get together and they would get up a lyceum. And mostly young adults would start it, would get the energy up because they had less to do. And it was only, say, between October and March at the outside. It was only in those dark months when it was so, you know, days are short, it's dark by four o'clock. Um, people didn't just kind of sit home and hunker down. They said, oh, goody, we don't have so much work to do. Let's go visiting. Let's have fun. And they went out on these cold, cold nights on open wagons and on horseback and walking and they would turn up at the local schoolhouse, um, one-room schoolhouse, little tiny place, and they would have a lyceum. They had did it about every week in, in many places. I'm fascinated by the physicality of it in the sense that they kept records in ways that perhaps we misunderstand. I mean, the farming records and the agricultural records may, may have been kept with a similar compulsion, I don't know. But the fact was that each one of these things, paper and writing sewn together in a kind of preconceived idea of a record is left as a little piece in a big puzzle. And, and what, what I find fascinating about this is that all those little pieces of puzzle, when they they're put together. This is one of the reasons I so enjoyed your book. When they're put together, they are a full portrait of a kind of intellectual landscape that was completely misunderstood or at least not even known about by right. the rest of us in modern times. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with authors and artists who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast the first Friday of every month here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org, and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm speaking today with Joan Radner, historian and storyteller, and author of a new book on the local literary societies of the rural towns of Maine. <laughs> 
can you expand on the on the model, particularly the the underlying motivation, which in your book you link to this passion for self education, one room schoolhouse, but a great big world to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in fact, it's interesting to me that your assumption is that the papers were a record. Mm. They, the the lyceums did keep records; they kept record books. They they had little bound books usually, and somebody would they would chip in and buy a little blank book. And the secretary, who was always a man, would week by week record the minutes. And those were read at the beginning of the lyceum. And we all know meetings that start out with the reading of minutes. That was exactly what it was like. And the minutes recorded who did what last time. They were just a list of you know who 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 debated because it was always a debate. That was a central thing, and. Who read the paper? The paper itself was not a record. The paper itself was ephemeral. See, each week, the Lyceum would appoint a different person, usually a woman, as the editor, or as they called it, the editress. And the editress would work all week getting her neighbors to write literature. They would, you know, farmers, farmers' wives, farmers' kids, local craftspeople, maybe the minister, the local lawyer, the little tiny intelligentsia of the village. They were all would all submit pieces. Everybody was supposed to write for the paper. Most people didn't because um, writer's block is not a new idea. I found one piece that was submitted in Freiburg to the editress and, and a little penciled note on the piece that said, Dear Miss Adams, Herewith, find something for the paper, which I trust may be suitable. If you can't read it, send it back, and I will hang it up in the cornfield this summer to scare crows. <laughs> so they were nervous about writing. But they submitted all this stuff to the named editress of the week. She picked what she wanted. She organized it in a particular order and then maybe sewed it together, like my great-grandmother in that journal I found. And then she made a fair copy of it in her own handwriting which did two things. First, it made it legible for her because her job was to stand up in the Lyceum and read the whole thing out loud. Everybody's word got equal time, whether it was written by a school kid or a lawyer, whatever. So she had to make it legible, but it also preserved anonymity because all the pieces were anonymous. Nobody knew who wrote what. So pieces that were teasing people. You didn't know who did the teasing. Uh, I find diaries where people say, so-and-so wrote the piece about so-and-so, I think. You know, so that was part of the game was guessing who wrote what as you sat across from people in that little schoolhouse and you watched to see who was going to laugh and who was going to blush and so on. But anyway, I said it it wasn't a record. It really wasn't because once the editress had made the paper, and had stood up at the end of the Lyceum, generally it was at the end, began with a man's voice reading the minutes, ended with a woman's voice reading the paper, and she performed the paper for the people, then the paper was done with. It had no further use. It might have wound up in the family privy. These Lyceums, they had no archives. The editress probably took the paper home and... Most of them were not saved. There would have been thousands of these papers in northern New England in the 19th century. In 20 years, I found 70. 
That's it. Yeah. They were ephemeral. The ones I found were generally, you know, I'd find a cluster of three or four of the same paper, say the Beans Corner Sunbeam, which was written in Jay, Maine. And so I'd find a few copies of the Beans Corner Sunbeam. They're in the Welt Historical Society, by the way. But they're all by the same, either by the same editress or by editors in the same family, because they wound up in that attic. So it's a pure chance. Mm-hmm. And and yet what you said about being the, the portrait of the community is right. It was the whole community conversation that went on, what people loved, what they worried about. Now, they wrote about everything from the abolition of slavery to the gold rush. They wrote about... Um, how much they loved their community and their landscape. They wrote a lot of poetry, much of it. um, My friend Pauline Greenhill, who's a folklorist in Canada, has written a a book about folk poetry, and she describes it as timely rather than timeless. Mm -hmm. Because they had literature in their minds. Mm -hmm. These people, they'd been raised listening to poetry, read out loud in the family, memorized in the schools, they had literature in their heads and they wrote in imitation of everything they had heard. Sometime I can give you some examples because they're really delightful of what they wrote. I mean, it's remarkable that these weren't connected to the, to the record keeping of the, of the institution. If they kept the minutes, why would they not keep the, the sort of vital interpretation of the minutes and, uh, and uh, along the way, but I, that's the way it was. Um, uh, what I also love about it is there's a kind of undercurrent of legitimized gossip uh, without <laughs> uh, without accountability. I have a friend who had written her PhD on the history of gossip, and I always thought, what a wonderful, what a wonderful way of understanding of, of what r- remains a powerful mode of communication. You know, the in- the internet is just something that's a, a tool for the perpetuation of gossip. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a little bit differently. I like the idea of legitimizing gossip, but it was even more than that in the paper. It was turning gossip into literature. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that if you're in a tiny community, it is so easy for things to fester and for rifts to grow. You have to make accommodations if you're stuck with just a few neighbors, you know, like living on an island. You have to buffer yourself. So that the lyceums were buffered. They did not allow, either in the papers or in the uh, debates, they didn't allow sectarian religion or um, political party writing. Mm-hmm. They wrote about politics, like that thing I gave you about teasing the guy about being a member of the legislature. And they wrote a lot about faith and about the brevity of life and how you face death and all of that. But they they were very careful not to touch on subjects that would feed into the current debates about religious sects and so on. And I think somehow the teasing about things, it lifted gossip from sort of behind the hand kind of chat to public art. Mm -hmm. And somehow that made it okay. Well, and humor, humor helps, Uh, uh, you know, community without humor is not a community at all. the ability to be able to talk about things with a sense of humor, um, even when you disagree, um, that allows for a, a, a kind of exchange of attitude 
that that is permissive in a way and tolerant and patient and kind. Uh, and uh, these people could not, because they live so closely together, it would seem to me they could not afford to make enemies. They exactly. May have, they may have made them, but they but they couldn't afford to make enemies. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and this whole idea of, of the topics of the debates, to stand up, to speak, prepare, but to speak spontaneously and to make an argument of conviction about a topic as vast as whatever these things were, the you know the issues of slavery or or religious belief. Mm-hmm. And so in the middle of nowhere, in down East Maine, in these small communities, great ideas were being discussed and 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 debated. They were very proud of their cosmopolitan awareness in these little farm villages. They they were aware of the kind of slur that was growing in 19th century New England about rural Maine. You know, rural New England is kind of the backwater, the, the, the degenerate people. Instead, it was a big shift from the admiration of, you know, the beautiful New England to the degeneration of the of the region and they were aware of that and they were saying uh-uh that's wrong that's wrong we we have a lot and we are we are better than you we live in a way that's better than the way you live and a lot of that is lies behind what they were doing debating had been going on since the 18th century in in new england but but it got down to these little villages and they paid careful attention to how they did it I find some of the rules of debating very moving. One of the rules of debating was listen to your opponent as though he may be right. Mm. Imagine that. What a concept. Impossible today. Well, I mean, I I, have a clash of certainties. I'm right. You're wrong. You'll never convince me otherwise. Tears come to my eyes as I think about it, and I'm surprised by that, you know? Mm-hmm. And they debated things that surprised me also. One of the topics of debate was, has America done greater harm to Indians or to Africans? What a great question. Can you imagine that they had the awareness to debate that? Yes, yeah also full of really bad uh, racist jokes mm-hmm. and so on. It didn't mean they were perfect, but that they that they saw that possibility. Mm-hmm. And they were surrounded by indigenous people. I mean, their neighbors were native people. That's uh, right. And we know very little about that interaction at that in those particular periods, other than sort of they're here and we're there. But the fact that they were aware to be able to discuss the fact that there might have been wrong. Mm-hmm. No, um, right. Rather progressive. We're struggling to do it today. Another hot topic was resolved that the mind of woman is as susceptible of education as the mind of man. Uh, that was the tricky one. Let's talk about the role of women in the in these meetings. Uh, it's so interesting that the sort of the the presumed roles who was a, who did this and who did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would seem when I read it, there's a, a very powerful underlying force, as always, that is exerted by the women in the room. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And no farmer would ever deny that a woman has power and is necessary. But it's just interesting because in the 19th century, women were very reluctant to speak in public. 
It was not the norm. Even women who spoke in public often did it sitting down or had someone else read their things. And yet here in the in these little co-educational community gatherings, which had everybody in them from the local minister and teacher to farmers and older school kids, you know, the whole range of men and women in the community, women were expected to take fairly prominent roles. They didn't debate until late in the century, although sometimes they wrote out debate arguments. But they did early on serve as judges and critics for the debates and for the the lyceums. And then they had this huge power as the editresses of the paper because they could decide whom to include, who not to include. They could write their own things and nobody would know who wrote them because they were all anonymous. So they they had a considerable role in the community um, that was unusual. You know, most women, reading was key female in the 19th century. Women were readers, but most of their reading, and reading always meant reading out loud, not silently. Most of their reading was domestic, you know, to the children, to the family in the evenings and that sort of thing. This was different. This was the woman taking on becoming the voice of the whole community. Well, then there's a psychological element in that. You you couldn't do that unless you could persuade your neighbors to provide you the material. And so you had in every transaction, as you do in any editorial relationship, you had uh, something that was both symbiotic but also antagonistic. The editor has power. the, The humble author is eager But in order to build trust between the two, there's a real psychological capacity to be able to persuade the the old farmer down the road to to open up and to and to provide something that was a public expression of himself. And it didn't always work. Mm. Sometimes the editors had to write a heck of a lot in order to fill out the paper. (laughs) They complained about that considerably, almost every editorial says, it's good for you to write for the paper. Come on, do it. In Mm -hmm. one way or another, they had so many ways to persuade each other. They wrote jokes and poems and all kinds of things, getting, telling people they better write for the paper. Another thing that impressed me was how well they wrote. Because by and large, these people had not even been to high school. They'd gone through the common schools, which ended kind of at eighth grade, although the boys had less schooling generally than the girls because in the summertime they were doing farm work and they generally came only to the winter schools. You'd have a young female teacher and some of the boys in their class would be as big as she was. My my mother used to tell me a story about my great-grandmother, the one whose, whose paper I found. She's, she was a school teacher for several years in one-room schools in, in Freiburg, Maine. Mother said, you know, she was really tiny. When I was a child, I could put my hands around her waist, but she was fast. She could run down the big boys in the woods with a switch if she had to. (laughs) I have a picture of her doing that in my mind. Exactly. Uh, So we have this revelation of curiosity, capacity, community that are all built into this movement that is nearly forgotten. You spend a good deal of time in the book talking about the links or the evolution between sort of the Lyceum papers and the press. 
uh, what was becoming uh, a kind of the commercial local community newspaper and things like that. Can you talk a little bit about how that developed? Well, the 19th century was the, the, the century of explosion of newspapers. And particularly after the Civil War, the regional newspapers carried columns from every town. So people, even in the little villages, felt connected through the newspapers. They read the papers. The papers made them aware of things. Maybe they were very much aware of the world through newspapers, and they meant it when they said they were writing papers. I'll give you a little bit of um, a little bit of a piece from Freiburg, an editorial for New Year's 1871. It says, we look back a 12 month over the written pages of the world, that is the newspapers, the written pages of the world. And we are filled with wonder and amazement at the great physical, political and social changes that have been taking place. Our own country throwing off the gloom that spread like a pall over us after the terrible shock of arms, the loss of kindred and waste of means has bounded forward in prosperity, enterprise, and perseverance, showing its handiwork all over our native land. They were very proud that they knew exactly what was happening in the world through the newspapers. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is, there are so many different things in the Lyceum papers that parody the commercial papers. Oh. They make a joke of newspaperness. And I think that's significant. Here's a little a little sample of such a thing. They love to to take the pieces from papers and write as if they were genuine newspaper things. <clears throat> we have often urged upon our patrons, this is from a Lyceum paper, the necessity of advertising in the monitor, and a few have patronized our advertising columns and always with good results. We publish but one instance. In our issue of last week, Miss Lizzie Abbott, who is sorely afflicted with corns, advertised for a remedy. The next morning, bright and early, a peddler called with a plaster warranted to pull them out by the roots every time. You can all see the value of advertising in our paper. The joke with that is that there were never any advertisements in the Lyceum papers. They had no advertising columns. They were just making a joke about it. You know, we're not great commercial people. Commerce is not what we have. Lost and found. Here's lost, a very small pasteboard box containing a pinch of ashes. This being all that remains of a true heart devoured by the flame of love, kindled by that false-hearted lass, Hattie Gilman. Any person finding the same will please return it to its owner, Will Abbott. They use the newspapers as ways of saying, yes, we are cosmopolitan, and ways of saying, what you're doing is kind of funny because it's all about a commercial life that we don't think is the right priority for the world. Right. It's like a personal. It's like those personals on the bottom columns in the front pages of the newspapers. Lost. Yeah. Belonging to the, the wife and the husband. I mean, it just, <laughs> it's very, very, very But tough. they faked so many of these things. I mean, yeah. Will Abbott probably didn't write that. Somebody was writing it about what happened between him and Hattie Gilman. They, they wrote they wrote all kinds of things about each other. One of the most devastating was they wrote mock uh, pages from each other's diaries. Oh. Oh. 
So there's a whole bit about um, from from Hiram's diary about how he went and courted a different woman every day and was turned down and finally decided to go off and be a conductor on the railroads. <laughs> um, but but, you know, he didn't write that. It was all forged. Of course, the commercialization of, of stories finds its way in into advertising itself, by the way, that advertising uses and corrupts the word story uh, these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, and secondly, it's crafted to unnatural ends. That a story can be made to justify a means, or a story can be made to illustrate a, a condition d- uh, devoutly to be wished. I mean, stories can be corrupted. So there's a, there's a distinction between parody and sort of honest fun and sort of the cruelty side of expose and, and, and gossip. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal, here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM, streaming and archived at WERU.org and available as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm speaking today with Joan Radner, author of a new history of the Lyceum movement in Maine, the many literary societies that were a key social element in the social life of rural towns in Maine in the 19th century. That's important. Um, and it's quite interesting because, you know, teasing can go too far. And sometimes it did. Sometimes in the papers, people said, you know, you shouldn't you shouldn't say this about people, mainly about strangers, because local people know how to discount the problem. There are some kinds of ideas that you should be writing back and forth and teasing people. I'll give you a little piece about teasing in the papers. Here's a little poem, a piece from a poem about literary provocation in the Lyceums. It said, after recess, a nice paper is read, but ah me, I hear it said that some are mad at the contents therein. Pray, tell me what it can have been. For we do not intend to plague anyone, but we do want a little fun. So if you get hit a little in that, just write for the next paper, tit for tat. <laughs> so it was a known way of tormenting your mm-hmm. neighbors. Mm-hmm. There's also a, a kind of seed of collective entertainment that finds its way through the communications tools that have evolved subsequently. They, they had that same kind of dynamic element that they entertained the community as much as instructed it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I want to say, though, that this wasn't all humor. Um, mm. the, the Lyceums were very serious in their purposes. They loved the fun. They loved the fact that they were going somewhere on a cold, dark night, and if you had the right companion, you'd have to stay very close for warmth. So they loved the courting possibilities of a lot of the people who went were unmarried young adults. They loved all of that, but they believed very sincerely that what they were doing was to improve their minds. They shared the 19th century's belief that the common schools, the public schools, were just the start of your education. And that the job of the common school, which went, you know, sort of to eighth grade, was to teach you enough so that you could continue to educate yourself for the rest of your life. And it was a self-education process. So that what you were doing in the Lyceum was actually learning to handle your mind. 
in face-to-face discussion with other people. Mm-hmm. And they believed that that was a much better way to learn than just by reading, for instance. Mm-hmm. That engaging someone else's mind face-to-face, word-to-word, listening, was the way you learned and became a citizen. And people who wrote about the, the Lyceums after, in fact, they, they had ended, wrote about that process. Here's a little piece from Wilson Palmer, who wrote a, a memoir of his boyhood in Candia, New Hampshire. And he talks about the effects of the Candia Lyceum. He said, the Candia Lyceum, as it was way back in the years of the calendar, has been a help to me in all my school and journalistic life. And I am positive that it has been a decided help to those boys who now occupy the pulpit and to those who have made their mark in the legal profession. And it has been a substantial aid as well to the boys who have remained at home on the old farm and to the girls who took an active part therein. To be able to speak in public and to discuss before an intelligent audience matters of current interest is an accomplishment that everywhere counts. It was really their motivation. Fun, but other things too. It was the fun got them in there to improve their minds. They didn't make a distinction. They they blended them together. They slowly devolved. They disappeared. What were the forces at work that caused that to be? Well, economic and educational. The villages that supported these little lyceums were generally farming villages that had depended on a kind of subsistence farming. And the way of life that they believed in was no longer possible. Economically, the Midwest, massive farming and had the railroads to ship produce to the east. They were winning even after the Civil War when the railroads came through Midwestern produce was cheaper in New England than New England-grown produce. So economically, the farming was less and less worthwhile, and it had been the center of people's lives. And then educationally, I think the country was ceasing to believe in the importance of general education, of self-education. A generalist could no longer become a lawyer, a doctor, a minister. Uh, law schools were being founded, and you didn't apprentice yourself to the local lawyer anymore. Medical schools were systematizing and making uniform their curriculum. Colleges and universities were starting to teach English in a way they hadn't before. Specialization was coming in. And all of those things, and, and of course, the the manufacturing towns and the the great mill towns of Lawrence and Lowell and so on were luring people away. And so sadly, really, the way of life that the Lyceum sustained was going. That force, that turning of a wheel, accelerated and became more and more powerful for a hundred years. And here we are now, as the wheel has turned, do you sense a need for this kind of phenomenon that informs the return to values that are modernized but referential to the values of that era. Can you sense a revival? Not of the same way. I don't think we have the same possibility now because we don't have the same sense of the local. 
we don't embed ourselves into a community for life in the way the 19th century villages did. However, I do take your point, and I think that we have more and more expressions of the need for personal face-to-face community. And I can see some kinds of things, for instance, the the growth of personal storytelling gatherings in bars and little places, bookshops and so on. The Moth is one example of that, where people get together and share their personal stories. Well, the revival of the memoir. Yeah. How many people do I know tapping away on their computers, writing their memoirs? It's true, but you're writing it to yourself and to people you imagine. But people in the in the lyceums were writing to their neighbors, mm-hmm. and they would know exactly how someone would respond to something they were writing. Mm-hmm. They were writing in there alone, but they were in community even when they were writing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's more analogous to recently there's been a phrase, the third place where you know you have a place where you're known at home, you have a place where you're known at work, but there are those third place communities where you're also known and you fit in. Third places, small communities where people are known and they build up a repertoire of jokes and teasings and illusions that no one else would know. Mm-hmm. There's so much of that in the papers. They're so esoteric. Right. Um, they're not explaining anything and in fact, one of the great difficulties for someone like me, who's an outsider chronologically and geographically and every other way for these little papers, because they're so esoteric, is understanding the jokes. I can't most of the time, and I don't even know whether, you know, why somebody would make some jokes. There's some wonderful writing that I have absolutely no explanation for. Mm-hmm. Uh, a great, great episode from South Bethel about an elopement. It is beautifully written. I'll, I'll just have to share this with you and then I'll tell you what the problem is for me with it. As I say, it comes from South Bethel, Maine, and it refers to two people who were actual residents of South Bethel, Maine. The headline is A Startling Incident. And it talks about an unsuccessful attempt of a prominent citizen to elope with a married lady. And Mr. Abbott had been behaving very unusually. His wife commented that he had once hung up his hat coming into the house, and she knew that that was so odd. There was something very strange going on in his life because he'd never been known to do that before. But finally, this man, Mr. Abbott, left home in his wagon as if he were going to a meeting of a committee, And actually, he set off and he picked up one Mrs. Goodwin in his wagon, and this is the piece. When halfway to Bethel Hill, however, the horse became frightened at something by the roadside, and Mr. Abbott, being unable to restrain him, having only one hand not engaged, they were both thrown violently from the wagon, and the horse, freeing himself from the shafts, ran home. A passerby soon noticed the mishap and set about to release the unfortunate couple who were struggling to regain their equilibrium, but were unsuccessful as the wagon and its contents were topmost. By the way, this is a great example of the quality of writing in some of these papers. Mm 
Upon finding herself free, the lady took to her heels, leaving only one thing that betrayed her identity. This was a dental plate set with two teeth in front, which were thrown from her mouth at the time of the disaster. Mr. Abbott was injured about the skull and has slowly been recovering his senses ever since, much to the satisfaction of his wife. It is stated upon good authority that as there was a box of eggs in the wagon, the unhappy pair presented a striking symphony in yellow at the time of the rescue. This is the second mishap Mr. A has experienced in trying to manage the horse with his dexter hand. Moral, don't try to do two things at once. Now, that's an exquisite piece of writing. It is. Absolutely exquisite. Now, Mr. Abbott and Mrs. Goodwin, but were both citizens of South Bethel, each of them had been had married a different partner three years before this took place. I have no idea whether it took place, what the causes were. I and the Bethel Historical Society with me have no inkling of what this actually meant, what the joke was, whether they had courted each other in their youth and, you know, there's nothing to hold it together except that it's drop dead gorgeous. Right. There's in the writing a kind of uh, delightful wry irony. Mm-hmm. And from that, you can, my mind immediately jumped to the best of the talk of the town pieces in the New Yorker. Yes. The ones that were written by Thurber and, and, and A.B. White that captured that tone. That's mm-hmm. what they did. They looked at cosmopolitan absurdities. And they rendered them as if they were real, but with this ironic tone that mm-hmm. provided a, a scathing editorial commentary along the way, but without a heavy hand, a light, yeah. light, light touch. I, I, I just love it. Uh, I hope for a revival. I think that those kinds of things begin to get together. I know that in the to the back of the land movement, young folks are reviving the Grange. So yes. certainly the local Grange, which was abandoned for decades, has socials in it. True, That's true. And in fact, it's happening now and it happened in the end of the 19th century. Hmm. There was a kind of a blend from these lyceums into the the rural, the subsidiary granges. And in fact, those granges initially started out, many of them meeting in the schoolhouse Mm -hmm. as the lyceums did before they built their own buildings. Mm -hmm. And I think myself that the fact that, you know, people always say about the Grange and its foundation that it was such a Uh, an innovative thing because it gave women prominent positions. Well, they had had prominent positions in the lyceums. And I think that there was a transfer there. They knew that women, what women could do. And women were often the, uh, the lecturers, the, um, the people in charge of the literary programs of the subsidiary granges at the beginning too. Some of them even had papers for a little while. Do you see a possible uh, educational model here? where a, a program could be introduced in the school that essentially has these elements built into it, self-study, study, debate, publication, as a kind of sort of instructional model that crosses the silos of disciplines and, and all the rest. It begins to recreate the educational purpose that's inherent in the model. 
I think so. I think it's a possibility. It would it would be different because it would be because of the authority of the teacher and because of the uniformity of the age of the students. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, in the 19th century, some of the common schools, some of the teachers started little school lyceums. They created papers yeah. and people in the community would come in and listen to the students' papers and listen to the students' debate. That could happen. That's an interesting idea. I don't think you would have the same kind of teasing. Uh-oh. Um, that would that would not be there. And one of the things that I realized partway into my research, and it clarified a lot, is why these papers are such a jumble of stuff. You know, they're all, you know, you, you come in, you have a, a poem about Mount Kearsarge, and then you have a joke about legislators, and then you have a riddle about why so-and-so is a flirt, and then you have another essay on men's vanity. You know, they're all in that kind of order. Mm-hmm. Um, an essay about facing death followed by teasing about somebody being sweet on somebody else. That was because you had to keep the attention of the mixed company. That was because it was like the New England weather. If you don't like what you're you're experiencing right now, wait a minute. So I think that wouldn't happen again. Not that sense of our conversation is so organically mixed, but mm-hmm. that doesn't mean that some of the virtues of it couldn't happen. We're going to run out of time. All the good conversations take longer than the time allotted. Could you summarize how you feel that this movement is an expression of the spirit of Maine. It's such an elusive thing to say the spirit of Maine. And yet each interview provides a kind of piece of the puzzle, if you will. Well, I don't feel much of an authority on the, the spirit of Maine. Those no one does. But there are a lot of aspects of it. I think of Maine as a place that has been a home of verbal artistry for a long time. I think that Maine people are witty and very perceptive about words, that they love wordplay, that they love the kind of arch tone, the slightly restrained humor, the dryness. And in that sense, I think that what the Lyceums were doing was they were allowing a full heartfelt expression They were allowing people to talk about the fear of death, about their legacy, about whether they were going to suffer because people were leaving the village and going west or going to the manufacturing towns. They were expressing their love, but they were able to do it in a very main way. Arch, wry, slightly at arm's length. And that mixture strikes me as a good part of the spirit of the Maine that I know. One last question. You're retired. Emerita. Well, been that for 20 years. That a lovely doesn't... word. Nonetheless, it's, it's <laughs> just as beautiful today as it was when you retired. Emerita. And you you were a storyteller. But what does that mean? The book is a, is a telling of the story. Are there other books or are you on the circuit? On the circuit. That sounds sounds sort of a little risky. <laughs> I, I'm emerita because I stopped teaching at American University and I went freelance. Uh, I didn't stop working. I devoted myself to 
storytelling and to the kind of oral history that helps people tell their own stories and helps communities tell their own stories. And that's something I am still doing and something I'm still very concerned to do. A lot of the stories that I tell are stories of community. The biggest one is Burnt Into Memory, which came from a year of interviewing people in Brownfield, Maine, who had experienced the 1947 wildfire that destroyed the town. And that that's actually available on CD, but I'm also performing it. I will be performing it actually on Zoom um, as a benefit for the fire in Maui. So that has been something very important to me to honor the people who had the courage to go through a wildfire and come back and bring their town back. And I also am doing a lot of work with finding the stories that help me understand how my ancestors, the English settlers who came in the 17th century, displaced the native peoples and trying to understand that interaction as a way of coming to understand my own responsibility in the current world, the privilege that I have because my ancestors took land from the Abenakis of Western Maine and settled there. So I tell a big story called Tangled Lives that weaves together stories of my settler ancestors and some Abenaki legends about a cannibal monster who came to devour a family. And that's kind of storytelling that means a lot to me. And I also tell a number of other local historical stories. Mm -hmm. I will come tell stories anywhere anybody wants a story. This has just been fascinating. I've really, really enjoyed it. And thank you. Thank you so much for being flexible and uh, and being so informed and devoted and entertaining. And uh, it's just been great. Thanks so much. I've really enjoyed talking with you, Peter. Thank you. My guest today has been Joe Newland Radner, author of Wit and Wisdom, The Forgotten Literary Life of New England Villages, Emerita Professor of Literature at American University, literary historian and storyteller, and resident of Lovell, Maine. This has been Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal. Thanks for listening.